My name is Phil Stinson. I'm a professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University, and I'm joined by my colleagues John Lederbach, uh, who's also a professor here at Bowling Green, and Steve Brewer, who's a professor at Penn State Shenango. And we're going to discuss in this podcast our recent research study uh, into drug-related police corruption. And John, if you could start us out by telling us a little bit about the background and some of the problems with police corruption in the United States over the last few decades. The problem of drug-related police corruption emerged first in the late 80s, early 90s, with numerous police scandals in several major U.S. cities during that period that involved drug-related police corruption. Some of the more famous ones emerged in Miami, Los Angeles, and especially in New York City, in which police officers were found to be using drugs or involved in the drug trade. The scandal in New York City led to what's commonly referred to as the Mollen Commission in the early 90s, and hearings were held highly public hearings in which cases of drug-related police corruption in the New York City Police Department were brought to light. That commission really had some findings that were disturbing in, in relation to how drugs had transformed the nature of police corruption, at least in New York City precincts. The commission found that drug-related police corruption involved not only drug use by police officers and drug sales, but also that the officers involved in use and sale of drugs in these precincts had really become criminals. They had engaged in robberies and thefts and shakedowns, and the commission was concerned because they thought that drugs and the emergence especially of cocaine and crack had transformed and made police corruption in general more dangerous to the policing profession. In light of those scandals, there was a handful of studies, exploratory studies on drug-related police corruption, in a couple of U.S. police departments, mostly based on observation and qualitative methods. And since those studies, those handful of studies, the two decades, two or three decades since, there's really been a lack of research and hard data on cases of drug-related police corruption. And so the basis of our research was this lack of cases to look at in terms of officers that were involved in drug use, sale of drugs, and engaged in the drug trade. And so that, that provided the basis for our study. In terms of the methodology that we use in this study, the data originally from my dissertation research, from my PhD dissertation, and in my PhD dissertation, I used the Google News search engine and set up what they call Google Alerts, which are automated searches that run every day. And I set these up in, in late 2004, and starting in 2005, started collecting data January of 2005 and collected data real-time on a daily basis for three years for my dissertation. I actually kept on collecting to this day, so all these years later, still collecting data. But in my dissertation data, it was three years of data and ultimately a content analysis involving 2,119 arrest cases where 1,746 sworn law enforcement officers who were employed by state and local law enforcement agencies across the United States, employed by uh, 1,047 non-federal, state and local, and special law enforcement agencies in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And in the dissertation, had 109 quantitative variables that were coded for each of the cases and all the news articles and other documentation, including court records that I've been able to find in many of the cases. And we took for this study a subset of those cases. And the way we went about doing that was I had developed a typology of police crime. And there are five categories of police crime in the typology. There's drug-related police crime. There's alcohol-related police crime. 
There's violence-related police crime, there's sex-related police crime, and there's profit-motivated police crime. So we're just looking at the drug-related police crime arrests. So the reason why that was important was that when you read the news articles, you read the narratives, you even read the court papers about these cases, it's very hard to really understand the underlying nature of what's going on, what's happening in these cases, if you just look at the charge, the criminal offense that a police officer who's arrested is charged with. For example, it's not uncommon that if an officer were to steal cocaine from a police station's evidence room, that the charge that they face criminally might be official misconduct and no drug charge, no possession of cocaine, for example, no possession of a controlled substance, that sort of thing. So we have to look past the official charge and look at the underlying nature of the case. So here we did that in these cases, and we have identified and we analyzed in this research study 221 cases that were drug-related arrests of police officers. And it involved 188 sworn officers who were employed by 141 non-federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies throughout the country, 123 counties in 32 states across the country. And several of the officers had multiple cases for a variety of reasons. They may have been arrested on multiple occasions. It may be that they had several victims where they were robbing drug dealers. And they robbed five drug dealers. That's five separate criminal cases. So we also, in this research study, looked at two other sets of variables that we coded specifically for this study. The first was we used the Drug Enforcement Administration's table of drugs of abuse, which is 26 drugs that are in seven classes of drugs. So that would be narcotics, depressants, stimulants, hallucinogens, cannabis, anabolic steroids, and inhalants. And we looked at coding not only at the class level, but we coded the 26 categories of specific drugs under each of those classes. And then we also went back and reread the articles yet again and coded the cases based on a number of variables that we developed that came from findings from the Mullen Commission report in 1994. And those are findings that they had as to specifically the types of drug-related corruption that police officers in the New York Police Department had been involved in. So that would be drug use, drug trafficking, thefts and shakedowns that are drug-related, facilitation of the drug trade, and then finally falsification and perjury related to drug cases. So we developed these variables, we coded all the cases, and we came up with some, some very interesting findings as to these drugs. In terms of some of the findings, 94.1%, so 94% of the cases involved male police officers. Only about 6% of the cases involved female police officers. Over 85% of the officers who were arrested for drug-related corruption cases held patrol or street-level positions. In other words, they were patrol officers, they were detectives, investigators, that type of thing, but they were not supervisors, they were not managers. Age, all over the map. We had uh, about 8.5% of the cases involved officers who were ages 27 and younger. We also had about 3% of the cases involving officers who at the time of their arrest were age 52 or older. The most common grouping in terms of a category of ages was about 28% of the officers are ages 36 to 43. In terms of years of service, 32% have five or fewer years of service, but 10% 
had 18 or more years of service as police officers. So again, wide range there in terms of the age and the length of service of the officers. All types of agencies are represented. Three-fourths of the officers work for municipal police departments. And the size of the agencies in terms of the number of full-time sworn personnel, again, a wide variation here. About a fourth of the cases involved officers who worked for agencies with 24 or fewer sworn officers. 35% worked for agencies with 1,000 or more sworn officers. These cases occurred all over the country, but 52% of the cases involved officers who were employed by law enforcement agencies in the south or the southern part of the country. And almost two-thirds of the cases involved officers who were on duty at the time of the commission of the crime or crimes for which they were arrested. In terms of the charges, the criminal charges against the officers, we looked at coding all of the criminal offenses they faced, but we also went back and we calculated what was the most serious offense charged. And 44% of the cases, the most serious offense charged was a drug case or a drug offense. 19% of the cases, the most serious offense charged was robbery. And then it goes down from there in terms of other offenses. But in terms of the top five criminal offenses charged, they would be drug offenses, robbery, driving under the influence, theft from a building, and then a sex offense of uh, forcible fondling. Those were the, the top five offenses that we saw. We then looked at the specific drugs, and we found that in terms of specific drugs, 49% of the cases involved cocaine, and that's the most common drug that we saw. 40% of the cases involved marijuana. Now, these are not mutually exclusive categories. It's very possible that a case involved both marijuana and cocaine. In terms of the top five drugs we saw, it was cocaine, marijuana, crack, hydrocodone, and anabolic steroids, but as to the steroids, that would be excluding testosterone. In terms of the classes of drugs, almost 59% of the cases involve stimulants, 40% of the cases involve cannabis, 22% of the cases involve narcotics, and about 8% of the cases involve hallucinogens. Also, anabolic steroids made up about 8% of the cases, and depressants less than 4%. When we looked at the Mullen Commission-based variables that we developed on patterns of drug-related police corruption, almost half of the cases, 49% of the cases, involved drug trafficking, and 29% of the cases involved some form of a shakedown or theft, theft from drug dealers, that type of thing. And we had six categories of thefts and shakedowns, including warrantless searches, thefts or shakedowns from street-level dealers, thefts or shakedowns from car stops and drug couriers, off-duty robberies, and thefts and shakedowns during searches and seizures, and then also thefts and shakedowns that occurred during calls for service where an officer was dispatched. We also saw that about 27% of the cases involved officers who were involved in using drugs, and about 18% of the cases involved the facilitation of the drug trade. And there are other specific findings, but I wanted to give an overview of some of the basic findings without going through a whole exhaustive list of every one of our findings. So we then looked at multivariate analysis, and I want to ask Steve Brewer to tell us a little bit about the multivariate analysis that was done for this study. 
what we decided to do was to figure out a way to really divulge of how these 26 drugs are interacting or predicting police corruption. Dealing with 26 different drugs and trying to figure out which one of those are important was our main goal. In order to do that, what we did is selected a fairly new technique to the social scientists called decision trees. And essentially, the decision tree technique graphically looks like a family tree. And in the tree, what we have at the top would be the form of police corruption. In the bottom of the tree, the different nodes of the tree represent the independent variables. And for our research, specifically, the 26 types of drugs. Now, what the decision tree program essentially does is selects the independent predictors or the drugs that we are assessing and selects those based upon their importance in predicting police corruption. Specifically for our research, we found that cocaine was the big driver for the data set, specifically for three different types of thefts and shakedowns, that being car stops, warrantless searches, street-level dealers, drug use, and drug trafficking. Cocaine essentially is the driving force determining and really driving whether or not police were engaging in that form of corruption. What do you mean by that, the driving force? So essentially when cocaine is present, you're more likely to have police engaging in those forms of corruption. So for instance, when police have any type of cocaine involved in that case, then they're more likely to engage in thefts and shakedowns during car stops or warrantless searches or a street level dealer. And also during whether or not they had to use drugs in that case as well. So from a police standpoint, if they're looking at assessing the case, if cocaine is present in the case by any means, then they're more likely to engage in these forms of police corruption. That's really the big conclusion there. Aren't we saying that these are the drugs that are most prevalent? Right. If you have a case with cocaine as opposed to some other drug, then you're more likely to get a shakedown. Right. Or you're more likely to have the police officer using. Okay. For instance, like if we look at three here, selling or dealing, trafficking, you know, the important variables are, for instance, marijuana and cocaine together. You could demonstrate that by using just cocaine and then some other drug that doesn't matter at all, like steroids. Right. And you would say, look, if a case has, we have two cases, one has cocaine and one has steroids, steroids. Right. then the cocaine case is going to more likely involve a shake. That's looking at a more of a policy standpoint. Yeah. Oh, well, that's what so we like, should be doing. If though. you're looking at it, what we printed out here, but from... We're at the beginning stages of trying to figure out policies to mitigate this and what, what we're interested in doing is figuring out if you can take the type of drug and predict the type right. of corruption. And when so cases that, that involve cocaine and some of the other ones like marijuana, hydrocodone, you're more yeah. likely to have corruption versus some of the other drugs that did not show up in our trees. I also wanted to say that, you know, besides cocaine, again, which was the strongest predictor for five of our six outcomes, other important drugs that were also important predictors were hydrocodone, heroin, marijuana, crack, anabolics, encyclidine, and analogs, oxycodone, and cocaine. So all of those were important predictors below the significance level of cocaine. But again, cocaine is the most important predictor of five of the six outcomes. Steve, in our forthcoming article on drug-related police corruption, there are several figures that we have accompanying the article. And figure one is a Chade classification tree of drug-related corruption dealing with specific drugs and shakedowns and thefts from car stops and drug couriers. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through figure one, the classification tree. So essentially at the top of the tree, again, we have what they call the root node. Okay, That's the, what we're trying to predict. And we're trying to predict the shakedown or theft from a car stop or drug carrier. And the most important predictor of that outcome is cocaine. 
However, we have two more levels within that tree that also predict the outcome. If cocaine is present, then marijuana also becomes important in those cases. And then even beyond that level, we have cocaine and marijuana are both present. Then the presence of phencyclidine and analogs also becomes an important predictor. So for overall cases, we have the importance of cocaine, marijuana, and phencyclidine and analogs are all in combination important if all are present within that case. But for instance, for cases involving only cocaine, then marijuana obviously cocaine is present, but if there is no instance of cocaine, then marijuana and phencyclidine are not important predictors. The last thing we looked at was a multivariate analysis using logistic regression to see if we could predict job loss. And what we found was that as agency size goes up, the less likely an officer who's been arrested for a drug-related crime is going to lose their job. They're less likely to lose their job if they work for a larger law enforcement agency. Also, the older that an officer is at the time of their arrest, the less likely they're going to lose their job as a result of their arrest. So if they're in their late 40s, they're probably not going to lose their job. Whereas if they're in their mid-20s, mid-30s, the likelihood that they're going to lose their job is much greater as a result of being arrested for a drug-related crime. Also, if an officer is actually charged with a drug offense, in other words, possession or trafficking or possession with intent to distribute, that type of thing, they're more likely to lose their job than those officers who were arrested for some drug-related offense, but it wasn't actually a drug crime. And then the last thing that we were able to look at in terms of predicting job loss, if an officer is on duty at the time they commit a drug-related crime, they're more likely to lose their job as a result of being arrested. So those are four different areas that we looked at in terms of predicting job loss. In terms of policy implications or takeaways from this study, I think it's helpful first to look at the state of the research on drug-related police corruption before this study and now after this study. Before this study, we had a handful of cases that occurred in big city departments that resulted in highly publicized scandals. And, uh, most police scholars were aware of them, but there was an absence of, of empirical data on the phenomena. Now we have analyzed 221 cases, and we know a couple of things that we didn't know before. One is drug-related police corruption in the form that it existed in New York City and Miami and some of the big cities occurs in police agencies across the United States, in big departments, small departments, suburban departments, urban departments. And so we have data that now generalize the phenomenon where we didn't have it before. Another thing that the study brings to the table is really a confirmation of many of the things that the Milan Commission found and feared about uh, the nature of drug-related corruption in New York City. That is, they found that New York City officers engaged in the drug trade became criminals and that there was a wide array of misconduct that came about in relation to those kind of cases. We found that the same thing occurs across the country, that these officers are engaged uh, not only in drug use and drug sales, but in, in criminal misconduct, robberies, shakedowns, the whole gamut that we found. And so in many ways, the Milan Commission was right. Their emphasis on cocaine in New York City and in the crime-ridden precincts in New York City, cocaine also seems to influence drug-related corruption across the country and in different kinds of departments. We didn't have that data because you can't get that in observational research based on one department or on findings based on scandals and special commissions. I think that there's a long way to go to develop specific policies that are going to help police administrators recognize and mitigate the problem. 
One of the things that the decision tree analysis did, though, was give us a starting place to try to discover or detect if there's any associations between the kinds of drug-related misconduct that occurs and the types of drugs. If we can further that kind of analysis with more cases from more police departments across the country, eventually we may be able to get to a point where police departments can if they can identify the drug problem, they might be able to predict the kinds of misconduct that they're going to have to deal with within their own departments. Although I think that kind of policy recommendation is beyond the scope of our particular study here. I do have one question for you. Uh, one of the criticisms that we hear every once in a while is that someone will suggest to us that there's some sort of a problem with our methodology that we rely on internet-based news articles and that there must be some other way to do a better uh, job of collecting data and doing research on drug-related corruption. What would you say there? Well, I think that we're familiar with those kind of arguments and most people that maybe are, are less familiar with the nature of police organizations and police scholarship would suggest that, you know, why don't you get official sources of data? If there's no comprehensive data at the national level, why don't you go out to police agencies and find it? The truth is that that data does not exist in any form that's available to researchers or, in fact, police administrators. And so we had to get a little bit more creative to find these cases so that we can look at them. The nature of our data is such that it, it provided cases across the country, 221 of them were before, you know, like I said, we had a handful of cases. And so in my mind, this is really the only way to uncover these cases in any uh, nationwide or comprehensive fashion. Well, I would just say that the nature of the dynamics between police corruption and collecting it in another manner would not, would not be feasible to go and give some type of you know, self-report survey or survey to a police administrator is also virtually impossible. So collecting it through Google Ads essentially is the most innovative way to collect that type of data and really the first of its kind. Yeah, well, there has been a bit of research that's been done over the years where police officers have been surveyed. Sometimes they're asked in a survey whether they know anybody who's engaged in these types of behavior as opposed to self-reporting. And there's been some interesting findings in that research. I'm very skeptical, however, of any effort to get law enforcement officers to report, either self-report on their own criminal activity or their own to, departments. Yeah, to report on anybody else's criminal activity. It's just... It's something that I think is very difficult. The other thing with, with that type of research is the survey research that's been done in the past has been involving where employees of one law enforcement agency have been uh, surveyed, or maybe a group of officers attending some sort of a statewide conference have been surveyed on a few occasions. But this uh, research that we've developed here is really uh, quite something in that we have cases from every corner of the country, large departments, as John said earlier, small departments, and really the first time that there's, I think, the opportunity to make generalizable research findings on drug-related police corruption.